everyone, and welcome to Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. I'm your host, Sarah Sin, tackling horror movies, peeling back the layers, and taking a deeper dive into them. Again, on the show, I don't just discuss my love of horror movies. I'd like to bring in the aspect and perspective of horror and history, how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am a psychology major, I'd like to bring this aspect and perspective in as well and see how the horror movie I'm focusing on reflects psychology and mental health in any way. Okay, so fall is officially upon us. Here in Vermont, the leaves have actually already started to change color. Many of them have fallen off the trees and the leaf peepers have started to show up to Vermont. So that's the tourists that come in and like to see the fall foliage here in Vermont. So we get a lot of slow drivers on the road, but fall is my favorite time of year. It's nice and warm during the day, cool nights. And well, Halloween is right around the corner. So fall has always been my favorite season of all. So I'm excited that Halloween is just around the corner. So yeah, another stressful week. Um, We were down a person in my room. They've been sick. And even though we only had like four or five babies at a time, I was stuck many, many times by myself with one, like me with four babies. And even though the ratio is one to four, having four babies by yourself is not fun. It's incredibly, incredibly exhausting. So by the end of this week, by the end of the week yesterday, I was so physically and mentally and emotionally exhausted. I just, as soon as my shift was over, I was like, bye, I'm leaving. Gotta go. Sorry, we have the harvest social, but I'm not staying for that. So I totally yeeted out of there. But anyways, next week, hopefully the third person comes back to our room and isn't feeling sick anymore because we really need her. But other than that, things are going, I guess, Okay, so not much to talk about here. So I'm going to just move on to the last movie for the theme of reading, writing, and body parts, duh, biology, with 1982's The House on Sorority Row, directed by Mark Rosman, starring Kate McNeil as Catherine or Katie, Eileen Davidson as Vicky, Janice Ward as Liz, Robin Malloy as Jeannie, Harley Jane Kozak as Diane, Jody Prey. Craigie as Morgan, Ellen Dorsher as Stevie, Lois Kelso Hunt as Mrs. Slater, Christopher Lawrence as Dr. Beck, Michael Kun as Peter, Michael Sergio as Rick, and Carlos Serio as Eric. Sorry if I butchered any of those names. So for horror history, I would definitely say this is reflecting. So a lot of movies in the 80s did reflect on the AIDS crisis, invoking like this. There was a fear of society of like, if you party, do drugs and have premarital sex, you're going to die of AIDS. That was kind of the fear that was being placed on society in the 80s. So who were the ones who were dying in these 80s slasher movies, but the people who were drinking, partying and having premarital sex. So I think it's definitely reflecting on that. I think it reflects also on, you know, the emerging adult stage like so like it's the age from like 18 to like 25 where you're not really a teen but you're not really an adult it's this weird transition in life and you sometimes you get like this feeling of like feeling lost like hopelessness like you're not really sure what you want to do with your life and definitely like childbirth being a mother and how no matter what you're always a mother you always are going to love your child no matter how challenging they may be um psychology and mental health we got transition between stages of life so like the teens or adolescent is identity versus role confusion and now we're transitioning into intimacy versus isolation we definitely have the seven deadly sins wrath lust sloth greed gluttony pride and envy 
uh, prefrontal cortex and, you know, damage that could be done to the prefrontal cortex, latent violence, changes in personality, trauma, hopelessness, antisocial personality disorder with psychopathic tendencies. So what is this movie about? It's graduation day on Sorority Row, and the girls of Theta Pi are planning on having a graduation party at the house as one last hurrah. But house mother, Miss Slater, has other plans. She always closes the house on June 19th. The girls decide to play a prank on the grouchy house mother, but the prank goes wrong and Mrs. Slater ends up dead. Or does she? Now as the party starts, the girls are getting picked off one by one by someone who knows their dirty little secret. Is it Miss Slater having survived the prank out for revenge? Or is it someone else killing the girls as a form of revenge? Moving on to the subgenre. So this movie was very easy to place into a subgenre. It came out in the 80s. There's horny teens who like to party, getting picked off one by one by a killer. You know, we have a good old flash, a good old fashioned slasher flick on our hands. This movie does have a revenge subplot thrown in it to kind of make it different from the other slashers at the time, as well as like throwing in a good old twist ending as to like who our killer really is. And, of course, we also have a final girl in this movie, so this is definitely a slasher flick. It's got all the pieces to it, so I will go over the definition of the slasher flick subgenre. Slasher flick. This subgenre is one of the most popular of the horror genre that exploded in the 80s. The most iconic horror villains, Freddy, Jason, Michael, all come from this subgenre. This subgenre usually involves a killer who tends to wear a mask, stalks and kills people, mostly teenagers, because they are partying, drinking, doing drugs, and having premarital sex. Many killers from this subgenre are seeking revenge against those who have done them wrong or have hurt them in any way. In most of these movies, there is a final girl who must go up against the killer. In this subgenre, the body count is usually high, and the deaths tend to be inventive, bloody, and over-the-top, and they don't skimp on the gore. Okay, so the first thing I'd like to talk about is, well, I'd really like to just talk about our girls, like the girls in the movie. We got Vicky, Katie, Stevie, Morgan, Liz, Diane, and Jeannie. These are our seven sorority sisters who are graduating and throwing the party that Mrs. Slater tries to shut down. While I was, like, watching the movie and I kept thinking about, like, the number seven, like, seven girls. Like, there's seven sorority sisters, seven girls getting picked off one by one. And there also happens to be seven deadly sins. And that's pretty much what I wanted to talk about when it comes to, like, the girls. And unlike the movie Who's Next, I don't really believe that each girl represents a specific deadly sin. I think a lot of them are a combination of a few of them. And I don't believe that Mrs. Slater represents, like, hope. Like, in the movie Who's Next, um, Aaron. The final girl in that one I said represented hope. Everyone else had a, was a seven deadly sin. I believe that the focus of this movie is seven girls, seven deadly sins. And again, I'm, I guess one, each one could represent a sin, but I feel more like each girl has a combination of a few. So my plan is to like go over a few scenes that involve our girls or most of the girls. Sometimes there's like one or two missing. And then again, like deep dive into like, each girl and the sins they represent and go from there. So the girls in the beginning, they pop some champagne, they pour themselves a drink and they're graduating, you know, sorry, they're celebrating their graduation. Diane, come on, come on up front. I'll start this time. A toast to law school. 
may be the shortest three years of my life. Jeannie, okay, okay. Here's to reaching my fullest capacity. Liz, about a quart and a half. Stevie, here's to Pan Am, my new employer. May they never find out I'm scared of flying. Liz, to my mother, who never let me forget I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Mama, you were wrong. It's up my nose. And then Mrs. Slater actually pulls into the driveway. Um, Liz, come on, Katie. Katie, okay, I want to thank you all. No, I'm serious. I want to thank you all for helping me become what I am today. <laughs> Wasted. Diane, Morgan, it's your turn. We realize this takes a lot of thinking, Morgan. Morgan, okay, a toast to, to, oh God, I'm, excuse me. And that's when Miss Slater bursts in to the room and Morgan runs out. Slater, what are you girls doing here? Liz, who, us? Slater, the house is closed. What are you girls doing here? Stevie, well, um, you tell her, Diane. Diane, it's all very simple, Miss Slater. We had to move the graduation party from the Silver Bear. Slater, move it? Diane, insufficient funds. So we... Liz, we're having the party here. Slater, really? Jeannie, we're only staying a couple of extra days to set up. Slater, and whose idea was all this? Diane, well, Vicky thought the house would be the perfect place, and we all agreed. Slater, Vicky, where is she? Stevie, we haven't seen her. Slater, I'll speak to her later. As for you girls, how could you even think of having a drunken spree in my house? There'll be no party here. The house is closed. I want you all out by tomorrow. Good night. And she leaves the room. Diane. The Wicked Witch of the West strikes again. Jeannie. She can't kick us out, can she? Diane. No way. The bylaws say we can stay. Like always, she's just flapping her wings. Stevie. Why does she always close the house on June 19th? Every other house stays open through the weekend. Liz. Who knows? She's retiring anyways. Jeannie. Nuh-uh. Who said? Liz. I heard her talk about it. Diane. Oh, I can't believe it. She's an institution around here. Stevie. She's the sorority mascot. Liz. Yeah, the house jackass. Diane. Well, maybe this place will finally get a normal house mother. The kind who sits in her room and drinks tea. Katie. She is different. Just a shame she's gotten so weird. She used to lend a little tradition to the house, you know? Diane. Slater is the last of her breed. When she goes, the species will be extinct. Let's propose a toast. To Mrs. Slater, the house mother to end all house mothers. So later on, the girls are actually hanging out um, by the pool that's never clean, so they never use it. And they're upset about, like, that Mrs. Slater wants to shut down the party. And also the night before, Miss Slater caught Vicky in bed with her boyfriend and ruined Vicky's um, waterbed. Liz, how was that romantic little skinny dip last night? Vicky, you shut up. Liz, chill out. Vicky, my waterbed got slashed to pieces and all I should do is joke about it? 
I'm telling you guys, she tried to kill me. Diane. Come on, Vicky, you deserved it. Can't you fuck anywhere else? Stevie. Mrs. Slater really flipped. She's never gone that crazy before. Diane. Wait till the party. Jeannie. God, when she sees the liquor, she'll have a stroke. Vicky. To hell with her. Sick of worrying about what Slater thinks. We run this house. For four years, we've had to put up with her and her shit. Liz. She's right. That lady's been a royal pain in the ass. Vicky. Yeah, well, there's been a million times that bitch has screwed us all over. We can't let her get away with it this time, right? Diane. Do you have something in mind, or are you just exercising your mouth again? Vicky. Yeah, I do have something in mind. Slater wants things to be as they used to be, right? Well, how about if we give her a good old-fashioned sorority prank? And then the girls start running ideas for the prank, and they're talking and talking and talking over one another. Vicky, I've got it. It's perfect. Well, are you interested or not? Katie, this is silly. I mean, we're supposed to be mature adults by now, right? Diane, one more fling won't set us back any. Vicky, okay, we'll do it on Friday, right before our party starts, huh? However, the prank does go wrong, and the girls accidentally kill Mrs. Slater. They dump her body in the pool, but the party continues, and they have one anyways, and the girls catch some boys in the pool um, swimming, and then there's no body in there. So the girls are actually in the kitchen at this point talking. Katie, she's alive. We put her back in the pool, and she was still alive. Vicky, you and Stevie are the ones to blame for that. You said she was dead, not me. Katie, who's to blame for shooting her? Vicky, how was I supposed to know there's another bullet in the gun? Diane, it doesn't matter now. Where is Stevie? Jeannie, I've looked all over for her. She must have left before she could turn off the... Katie, it's a good thing she didn't. We would have never known Miss Slater is still alive. Morgan, how do we know she is alive? Liz, what do you think? She floated out of the pool? Or maybe she got sucked down the drain? Jeannie, do you believe this? Look what we're talking about. Diane, Jeannie, stop. Morgan may be right. Miss Slater could have collapsed somewhere just after getting out of the pool. Vicky, we have got to find her before somebody else does. Katie, I cannot believe you, Vicky. You'd sacrifice anything to save yourself, even Mrs. Slater's life. And what about the rest of you? I am calling the police. I cannot live with this anymore. Vicky, listen to me. If she were alive, wouldn't the police be here by now? Diane, she's right. She would have called hours ago. Katie, what if she can't? What if she's lying on the ground bleeding to death? Vicky, if she were alive, she would have reached a telephone. Face it, Katie, Mrs. Slater is dead. And that's when Katie leaves the room. She won't call. Morgan. But what do we do? Vicky. Well, Miss Slater couldn't have gotten far. Let's check around the outside of the house. Morgan, go pack Slater's clothes so it looks like she left. We can find her, but we're going to have to hurry. So, as I mentioned before, I'm, I don't really think, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't think each girl represents a specific sin, even though each one probably could represent a specific sin. I feel like each one can represent, like, more than one sin. You know, like, 
you know, but I guess for me, it's like, I don't feel like it's a coincidence that there's seven girls, you know, who murder their house mother covered up and there's seven deadly sins. You know, the character of Morgan is basically presented as the sexy dumb blonde. Like in the beginning, the girls make fun of her and, you know, they tell her like, this requires some thinking, Morgan, implying that she's not the brightest crayon in the box. She also wears a very revealing black dress at the party, which just happens to be like my favorite dress out of like everything the girls wear, you know? So I feel like because she's supposed to be like the sexy dumb blonde, she represents lust, you know, a strong passion, sexual desires associated with pleasures of the body, pleasures of the flesh. But lust can also mean like a deep desire, an appetite, craving, need for something like lust for gold, lust for power. You need it, you crave it, you desire it. And I feel like the way they um, imply and have the character of Morgan, like she would be the representation of lust. Vicky, God, this girl has such hatred towards Miss Slater. And she's the one who plans the prank and brings the gun that does accidentally kill Mrs. Slater. Like, she's so full of, like, anger and hatred and animosity towards Mrs. Slater because, you know, she ruined her waterbed and, you know, yada yada and all this other stuff. You know, she's the one who wants to, like, hurt Mrs. Slater by pranking her, get her back. You know, this isn't about um, a good old-fashioned innocent prank anymore. This is about revenge for Vicky you know, her wrath is what gets Mrs. Slater. So for me, um, I feel like Vicky represents wrath because she is the one who is filled with so much anger towards Mrs. Slater, develops the prank, and is the one who actually shoots the gun that kills Mrs. Slater. Jeannie, I guess, you know, I guess you could say kind of represents gluttony. Now, gluttony is often associated with like excessive eating or drinking, you know, excessive consuming like consuming of goods but gluttony is also associated with the idea of someone with like a great desire for something like there's the saying a glutton for work a glutton for punishment and this is why I feel this probably falls onto Jeannie she's very sweet but quiet kind of mousy seems to kind of get walked on by the other girls and doesn't really seem to be the one to stand up for herself she kind of just takes commands from Vicky and doesn't really question her. So when talking about, like, the sin of gluttony, um, I feel like we're talking about the idea of, like, a glutton for punishment, and I feel like Jeannie's the one who represents this. Um, our girl Stevie, I feel like she's probably the one who would best represent sloth. You know, this sin is associated with, like, laziness, one, not utilizing their talents or abilities. She does mention that she's going to be working for... Pan Am, implying that she's going to be a flight attendant is what I'm assuming. I don't think she's going to be a pilot, yet she's afraid of flying. So why take this job? Like, why would you take a job as a flight attendant when you're terrified of flying? Like, is she too lazy to find a job more suited for her? Like, not using her degree to utilize her abilities and just took this job for, I don't know, security? You know, we don't really know, but from what I'm kind of reading into it, Stevie took this job because she didn't push herself to utilize her talents to find a job more suited for her. She just took a job for security. So for me, that kind of represents sloth. Liz, our girl born with a silver spoon in her mouth, as she says, meaning that she comes from money, she's rich. This is often associated, like the idea of like, 
having money and being rich is often associated with pride. You know, someone who thinks highly of themselves with little to no regard for others, vanity, high opinion of themselves, feeling superior to others. So I feel that Liz is the one who kind of represents this. And, you know, she even says at one point that she took that money and put it up her nose, implying that she uses drugs, most likely cocaine. She also stands by Vicky's side, like joining in on the prank, pretending to be shot by her, helping her at the graveyard to dig into a grave to stash Mrs. Slater's body. So I feel like she is prideful. She doesn't want to get caught and go to jail. So to hell with the others, you know, she's going to go along with Vicky and hide this body to save her own ass. So I feel that Liz represents, you know, pride. Diane, who happens to be one of my favorite characters in this movie, like I really love the character at Diane and I was so sad that she gets murdered in this movie. She's our law student. She's the one who's going off to law school. And lawyers are often associated with the idea of greed. You know, the excessive pursuit of material goods, personal gain, wealth, take from others, you know, desire to have things, possessions that belong to someone else. And Diane does show some greed when she is willing to go along with Vicky about covering up, you know, the death of Mrs. Slater. She wants to move on, go to law school, you know, and doesn't care that a life was taken. You know, she is greedy in the sense that she is thinking of herself and not the others in, you know, that she wants to, you know, like, let's just cover up this murder so I can get going and go to law school. And like I said, lawyers are often associated with, you know, the idea of greed. So I would say that Diane best represents greed. So that leaves our final girl, Katie, who I believe represents envy, you know, which is jealousy, desire to have something, um, traits, abilities that belong to others that others might possess. You know, in one scene, right in the beginning, she is talking to her mother, like telling her that she's not coming home for the summer, that she has a lot of things to think about, like what she wants to do with the rest of her life. And her mom even says, like, don't you think after four years of college, you would have started, you know, started on those decisions? Like, once you have figured this out after four years of college, like, that's what this is for. And even when the girls are giving their toast, having plans about what they're doing after college, she's kind of silent. And the look in her face is kind of like, I want to say like confusion, maybe um, like she's a little envious of her friends, plans and futures. Like she's feeling a little lost. She doesn't really have a clue about what she wants to do with her life. And she's hearing all her friends talk about their plans. So I feel like she's a little envious of her friends because they have a plan, like they have a future, they know what they want to do, and she doesn't. She feels kind of stuck and doesn't really know her path. So I say Katie represents the sin of envy. So I guess each one could represent a sin, you know, just individually. However, many have other traits, like Liz represents pride, but can also represent greed. Same as Diane, who represents greed, but can also represent pride. Katie may represent envy, but also pride as well, and possibly sloth, because she doesn't really know what she wants to do with the light and she, her life, and she's not really utilizing her abilities. Vicky represents wrath, but also represents, like, greed and lust as well. Okay, actually, let's be honest. Vicky represents all seven deadly sins wrapped up within one body. So, yes, each one represents a sin, or can be a representation of a sin, but they also have other sins within them. But I just like the idea that it was seven girls, there's seven deadly sins, and each one kind of has a trait of the sins. So I hope that all makes sense.
Okay, so next I'd like to talk about our killer, Eric, who also happens to be Mrs. Slater's son. So we open the movie in black and white to a woman in labor, and the doctor performs what I believe is an emergency C-section. Slater, where's my baby? Where's my baby? Dr. Beck, I'm sorry, Mrs. Slater. Slater, no, no, no! So Mrs. Slater has a child, and we don't really know what happens to it. You know, the opening is very vague on purpose. We have no clue what's actually going on. Like, when he says, I'm sorry, we assume she lost the child. So we do see Mrs. Slater talk to Dr. Beck, and this is right after graduation. Dr. Beck, they're just asking for talks. You've got to reconsider. Slater, my mind is made up. I intend to spend this summer as I spend all the rest. Dr. Beck, but the environment here is so much more helpful. Slater, I told you, there'll be no one else at the house. It was closed for three months today. Dr. Beck, I understand, but anything might happen. At least here, we're prepared to handle it. His condition is getting worse. You know it as well as I do. We both knew the risks. For 20 years, you've been blaming me for what happened. Don't you see? You're living in a fantasy world. You've got to forget the past. Live with what you have here today. Slater, you've done a good job of forgetting. Well, I never will. If you try to stop me from living as I please, I'll see that what you did is remembered. Dr. Beck, I've had a new tag made. This must be worn at all times, just in case there's any problems. Slater, there'll be no problems. Good day. And then later on, we actually see Dr. Beck in his office, and he's talking into a recorder. Evaluation as follows. Condition clearly stems from Mrs. Slater's extremely difficult and traumatic delivery. Since that point, the slow progression towards a psychotic break has been evident. X-rays taken after an errant cephalogram reveal the cortex undergoing a progression of decay. Patient's advanced age is aggravating the condition. My recommendation is for immediate advanced treatment. The next three months must be spent under complete clinical supervision. Allowed to live in an uncontrolled environment, there's a good chance that any traumatic episode could act as a stimulus for the patient's latent violence. After the murders start to happen, Katie actually finds this medical like alert necklace right where one of her friends happened to be attacked and she calls the number. Katie, I'm sorry to be calling so late, but I found this necklace. Dr. Beck, who is this? Katie, my name's Catherine Rose. You don't know me. I found this medical alert tag, and I called the number. They connected me. Dr. Beck, what's the name on the tag? Katie, Slater. Dr. Beck, Dorothy Slater? Katie, yes, she's our house mother at the sorority. That's where I'm calling from. Dr. Beck, yes, I know the house. Is something wrong? Katie, well, during our party here, one of the girls was attacked. That's where I found the tag. Dr. Beck, where's the girl now? Katie, I don't know. She disappeared. Two other girls have also. Dr. Beck, where's Miss Slater? Katie, she's not here. Dr. Beck, now listen to me carefully. I doubt anything's happened to your friends, but I think I'd better come over. Stay in the house until I arrive. So Dr. Beck does you know, show up to the house, and he's talking to Katie while they're in the attic, and he starts to explain a little bit about Mrs. Slater. Katie, why did she wear this? Dr. Beck, 24 years ago, she came to me. She heard about my work with other women unable to bear children. 
As risky as it was, and knowing the odds were against her, she went through with the experimental procedure. All she ever wanted in life was to have a child. Katie, what happened? Dr. Beck, it was a bitter disappointment for her as much for me. The delivery was terribly traumatic. Ever since then, she's been in a world of her own. Katie, who's Eric? Dr. Beck, where did you hear that name? Katie, it's on the card right there. Dr. Beck, every June 19th, she celebrates his birthday as if she had a normal loving son. Katie, so that's why she always closed the house before June 19th. Dr. Beck, Catherine, we've got to find Miss Slater. Where is she? Katie, that tag. I found it at the same spot where Jeannie was attacked. Could Mrs. Slater have done... Dr. Beck, you think Miss Slater has something to do with your missing friends? Katie, I don't know. And then, again, later on, Dr. Beck actually uses a sedative on Katie, sits her down in a chair, and this is after um, Katie actually told Dr. Beck everything about the prank in Mrs. Slater's death. Dr. Beck, stay there. It's all right. Relax, Catherine. Miss Slater was the last one I used the drug on. Like the others, Eric was born with certain abnormalities. I warned her. It's what we expected to happen. Eric spent every summer away from the clinic in the attic. I told Miss Slater that his condition was worsening. She wouldn't listen. He must have seen everything from the attic window. Do you understand? I must find him. You're the last one of your friends alive. You're the bait. Okay, so what we do know is that Eric, Mrs. Slater's son, was born with, you know, quote, abnormal. In the beginning scene, like when Mrs. Slater asks like, where her baby is and Dr. Beck says, I'm sorry, like I said, we assume it meant that the baby didn't make it and the baby had died, when in actuality, it meant that the child was born the way Dr. Beck had kind of like predicted or worried that would happen, the way he warned Mrs. Slater of what could have happened. What we don't know are what the actual abnorm abnormalities are, sorry. We never see Eric, so we can't see if he has physical abnormalities. What we do know is that his cortex shows a progression of decay, as Dr. Beck says. Dr. Beck doesn't say, actually, whether he's talking about the cerebral cortex or the prefrontal cortex, but I believe it's the latter. So when we actually see the scans that Dr. Beck is looking at in the x-rays, it seems to be the prefrontal cortex that has the abnormalities, and that's the one that's showing decay. Dr. Beck also mentions that a traumatic event could be the trigger to a psychotic break to some latent violence. So this is what we do now. So let me talk about the prefrontal cortex really quick. Quick, It's the front part of our brain. Like prefrontal, it's the front part. It's basically what separates us from the animals. Like, our prefrontal cortex houses our personality, emotional regulation, memory, learning, cognitive functioning, our sense of self. It basically houses what makes us, well, us. Any damage to the prefrontal cortex can severely alter a person. So, like, when you get a chance, look up Phineas Gage, a Vermont man who ended up with, like, a rod going through his skull. And he lived, and it severed his prefrontal cortex um completely changing him like he was no longer the man he once was so you have damage to the prefrontal cortex it's going to change who you are so like i said i believe dr beck is talking about decay he's talking about that's going is going on in the prefrontal cortex of our killer eric now there are diseases that and disorders that can affect the prefrontal cortex so any damage or slow progression or decay may alter, you know, these disease and disorders and could pull them from being dormant, you know, and mild 
to active and severe. Some diseases like dementia and Alzheimer's affect the prefrontal cortex, but I don't believe we're actually dealing with a disease. I believe we're, we're um, dealing with a disorder. Some disorders that affect the prefrontal cortex can be anything from like depression, anxiety, and PTSD to schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and antisocial personality disorder. This is what I believe we're dealing with. I believe that the abnormalities that Dr. Beck speaks of in his is mental illness. You know, this is a topic that was, you know, hush hush in the 80s. You know, like back in the day, people, you know, were abnormal or had abnormalities could just be suffering from mental illness. But people didn't, you know, that was your dirty laundry. People didn't want to hang back then. You know, Eric could have suffered from schizophrenia you know, which is a disorder where people have bouts of psychosis and may experience hallucinations and delusions. Or he could suffer from antisocial personality disorder, you know, more, well, actually more specifically conduct disorder. It's the same, has the same symptoms, um, but it's diagnosed in people before the age of 15. You know, this is where people lack emotions and empathy, no regards for people's feelings, no feelings of remorse, there's lying, and aggressive behavior. This is what I believe Eric has. I believe that Eric had signs of conduct disorder, and not everyone with conduct disorder will develop antisocial personality disorder. And Dr. Beck saw it progress. So Eric was born with conduct disorder. It progressed to antisocial personality disorder. And the fear, as he mentions, is a traumatic event would awaken these latent violent urges. You know, I believe what Dr. Beck was saying is that a traumatic event, such as witnessing the death of his mother, could awaken his psychopathic tendencies, causing him to become violent and possibly kill people. So I hope that all makes sense <laughs> with what I'm talking about. So when Dr. Beck is talking about a decay, progression of decay in the cortex, I believe it's the prefrontal cortex. This houses everything that makes us who we are. It's what separates us from the animals, you know, our emotions, memory, personality. So any kind of um, decay or damage to the prefrontal cortex will change a person and, you know, and change them, can severely change them. And I believe that what we're talking about is that Eric suffered from conduct disorder um, that progressed to antisocial personality disorder. And the fear of Dr. Beck was that if he experienced some kind of traumatic episode, it would basically like awaken the psychopathic tendencies that might have been lying dormant within the prefrontal cortex. And then he would become violent, this latent violence he talks about, and he possibly could start killing people. So I hope that all makes sense. Okay, so I'm going to move on to my reviews, and again, because of time, I'm only going to read one. Movies and Mania say, While the plot may be familiar, The House on Sorority Row is a triumph of style. Director Mark Rosman may have told a familiar story, but he told it well, putting more emphasis on suspense than gore. Regardless of how silly the plot may be, you still get caught up in it. Rosman is at his best towards the end of the film when the final survivor has to fight off the murderer while under the influence of a hallucinogenic drug. So overall, this movie is a witty yet terrifying slasher flick that has an interesting twist to make it stand out from the rest. There are a bunch of creative kills, yet it is light on the gore, but entertaining nonetheless. All the girls are different, unique, with different personalities, and you do start to care about them in a way. Even Vicky, the girl you love to hate. She is so full of anger, yet she's spunky and loves to have a good time. She is greedy, but you really can't help but love her in a way. 
And Katie does make a unique final girl in the sense that she has to fight off the killer while also being under the influence of a sedative given to her without her consent. She may be virginal, but she's not innocent. She was there for the death of Mrs. Slater, and even though she wanted to call the authorities, she didn't. If you haven't seen this movie, you really should. I was surprised by the killer reveal the first time around. It takes some time getting going, but once this movie gets going, it's one hell of a roller coaster ride. So I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you again for joining me here on Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. Again, I'm your host, Sarah Sin. Thank you for sticking around as I discuss horror history, psychology, and mental health within horror movies. Hope you enjoyed the show. Again, thank you for listening. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a horror movie out there for everyone to enjoy. So thank you. <laughs>